Sunday, April 30th, 1939. We're at Flushing Meadows Corona Park in Queens, New York, at the grand opening of the 1939 World's Fair. It's an unseasonably hot day. 206,000 people are in attendance. Here, at the RCA Pavilion, RCA President David Sarnoff is about to give a speech. He's officially introducing a new product to the American public. That product is television. We are now ready to fulfill the promise made to the public last October when, after years of research, laboratory experiments, and tests in the field costing millions of dollars, the Radio Corporation of America announced that television program service and commercial television receivers would be made available to the public with the opening of the New York World's Fair. Ten days from now, this will be an accomplished fact. The long years of patient experimenting and ingenious invention which the scientists of the RCA research laboratories have put into television development have been crowned with success. I salute their accomplishments and those of other scientists, both here and abroad, whose efforts have contributed to the progress of this new art. At 3.12 p.m., President Roosevelt formally dedicated the fair in an address before a gathering of 60,000 at the Court of Peace. Not only was President Roosevelt's speech broadcast on the radio, it was also seen on black and white television sets with 5 to 12 inch tubes. NBC used the event to inaugurate regularly scheduled television broadcasts in New York City over their experimental TV station, W2XBS. An estimated 1,000 people viewed the Roosevelt telecast on about 200 television sets scattered throughout the New York metropolitan area. W2XBS is today known in New York City as WNBC Channel 4. Breaking Walls, episode number 83. My name is James Scully. Tonight on Breaking Walls, we focus on the radio industry of the 1930s and 40s, especially on the career of David Sarnoff, as RCA's network, NBC, begins to lose its grip on the top spot in the broadcasting industry as they introduce television. We'll also focus on the introduction of new talent to the industry and the CBS talent raids of 1948 and 1949. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, thank you. Welcome to the show. You can find this show on iTunes, everywhere else you get a podcast, and at thewallbreakers.com. Tonight's episode number 83, it's in tandem with our previous episode, as much of the timelines overlap. If you haven't listened to episode number 82 yet, I'd recommend doing so. Some things previously explained in detail, like NBC and CBS's issues with the FCC, the sale of the NBC Blue Network, and the birth of 
of the American Broadcasting Company will be glossed over in this episode in the interest of time and redundancy. Our opening theme song tonight is Mr. Lucky, originally written for a TV series of the same name by Henry Mancini. This version was recorded by Cy Zentner and released on his album From Russia With Love. It's a fitting theme for an episode that centers around the career of David Sarnoff. If you've been enjoying Breaking Walls, give a listen to our six-part audio drama miniseries called A Man Named Marlowe. It takes place in 1935 Los Angeles and stars Raymond Chandler's famous private detective Philip Marlowe. It's available in the same feed as this podcast. Also, yet unannounced, I've got new audio drama in the works. Information on such will be following in the coming months. And if you're listening via iTunes, give a quick show rating. It only takes a moment, and the more people who do, the more people who will be able to discover Breaking Walls. You may also support these shows and unlock bonus content and other clips for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. New York City, December, 1933. We're at Rockefeller Center with David Sarnoff and Edwin Howard Armstrong, five and a half years before Sarnoff introduced television at the New York's World Fair. John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s sprawling office complex has been given a holiday makeover to welcome its new tenant, the Radio Corporation of America. RCA's new landlords trucked in a 45-foot Christmas tree, illuminating it with 700 lights that twinkled above the old friends' heads as they walked by. Sarnoff is now graying at the temples, his growing waistline concealed with impeccably tailored suits. Armstrong, still an avid tennis player, remains tall and slim. He's just celebrated his 43rd birthday. Sarnoff will join him in two months. For the past two decades, Armstrong has been stopping by David Sarnoff's ever-growing offices. In fact, Armstrong's wife, Marion, had been David Sarnoff's secretary when they'd met. By the 1930s, Sarnoff's lavish spending on NBC's radio studios graded many of the 288,000 RCA shareholders. The Depression had cut profits to the point where RCA stocks were no longer paying dividends. And after six years and countless millions invested in the development of television, Sarnoff freely admitted it was still years away from becoming a viable business. His detractors mocked him as the televisionary. His friend Edwin Armstrong's detractors called the engineer egotistical, stubborn, and a man who couldn't let the past go. In 1934, Edwin Howard Armstrong was still involved in a patent suit with fellow inventor Lee DeForest over the creation of the first regenerative circuit in 1913. David Sarnoff had repeatedly warned his friend to let the past go in order to build a better future, and the two men often discussed how to solve the problems that had dogged radio. The amplitude modulation signals, or AM, used by radio stations in the 1920s shared many drawbacks. Among the most serious was that they were subject to significant levels of interference. This interference led to much crackling and hissing at the radio receiver. 
Edwin Howard Armstrong had been studying this problem since 1914. A theorized way of eliminating the static involved a different form of modulation in which the frequency, or length, of the carrier wave was modulated instead of the amplitude or height. However, mathematicians considering this issue stated categorically that frequency modulation could not solve the problem. Armstrong disagreed. The two men drove to Columbia University. Armstrong led Sarnoff to Philosophy Hall and to the Marcellus Hartley Laboratory that Armstrong ran. On a table was a bunch of radio gear laid out in an unusual order. Pointing to one of the two circuits, the Major said it was a typically static-prone AM receiver. The other was hooked to a little black box. Armstrong flipped on the second receiver. The faint static coming out of the speaker immediately vanished. The audio quality gained a fuller, richer sound. Armstrong told his friend that a new style of broadband communications was now possible. Networks would be able to carry far more information in this new system than in the older, more narrowband system of AM. Sarnoff immediately made available the RCA lab on the 88th floor of the Empire State Building for Armstrong to continue his experiments in and also so Sarnoff could keep a watch on him. David Sarnoff told Major Armstrong that this was no ordinary technological upgrade. This new system was an entire revolution. Edwin Howard Armstrong had invented FM. On a Sunday night, a week after my inauguration, I used the radio to tell you about the banking crisis, about the measures we were taking to meet it. In that way, I tried to make clear to the country various facts that might otherwise have been misunderstood, and in general to provide a means of understanding, which I believe did much to restore confidence. Tonight, eight weeks later, I come for the second time to give you my report, in the same spirit and by the same means, tell you about what we have been doing and what we are planning to do. As 1933 ended, the business of RCA was improving and its deficit narrowing. Although the economy continued to languish despite the New Deal legislation passed at President Roosevelt's behest. Unlike film and theater, radio provided diversion and escapism for the American audience at no additional cost. It also provided lifelines to the real world through the fireside chats that President Roosevelt often broadcast. Sales were stimulated by RCA's introduction of a new line of portable radios, sold for as little as $20. It allowed people to take communication and entertainment on the go. The advertising industry desperately trying to gain access to what little of the buying public remained, increasingly were using radio as its chief communications tool. By 1934, David Sarnoff had returned RCA to profitability. Gross sales were $79 million. Net earnings were $4.25 million. Dividends on Class A preferred stocks were paid up. And the company's treasury possessed a surplus of $13.5 million. Sarnoff used his success to turn his thoughts towards television, something he'd believed in since 1923. It is now 12 years since this apparatus 
showed the transmission of outline images to the public for the first time. This is the scanning disc with its lenses. That year, a Scottish pioneer named John Logie Baird had developed a mechanical disc transmitter. Two years later, he launched a series of blurry test transmissions to receivers placed in London department stores. It was the first public television demonstration. Next, a Dayton, Ohio engineer named Charles Francis Jenkins had been working on television experiments since the middle of the 1920s. Jenkins' technology was primitive. It employed prismatic rings that rotated horizontally and vertically, scanning a film across a photoelectric cell. The result was a blurry silhouette reproduced on a 6 by 8 inch screen. Jenkins obtained an experimental license from the Federal Radio Commission to begin regular telecasts over Washington Station, W3XK. Almost overnight, bankers underwrote a $10 million investment in the Jenkins Television Corporation with a capitalization of 1 million shares. Jenkins' mechanical disc receivers were assembled for sale through radio retailers and priced from $85 to $135. He also offered a do-it-yourself kit for $47.50. GE and AT&T soon jumped in. By the end of 1928, the Federal Radio Commission had granted 28 experimental television licenses. But two things stopped the industry's growth. First was the Great Depression, and second was a growing belief, Sarnoff chief amongst, that the mechanical concept on which television was being built was the wrong technological approach. In 1923, I demonstrated a complete electronic picture transmission. In 1929, Sarnoff met with a Westinghouse scientist named Vladimir Zwerkin. By television, we can see the things which is impossible to see normally with our eye. Something which was too far, too close, uh, too dangerous, or too impossible to Back to in 1923, Zwerkin had invented a cathode ray scanning tube known as the iconoscope. That gave television cameras an electronic eye. It promised a quantum leap over the mechanical scanning apparatuses. Sarnoff pledged to underwrite Zwerkin's research effort. Within a year, corporate unification allowed total control of experimental research to come under RCA and Sarnoff's control. Sarnoff would often visit RCA's engineers at their Camden, New Jersey research facility. He later said it was a question of confidence. The technical people had to know management was behind them. I let them know. I believed in them more than they believed in themselves. In 1932, sales of Charles Jenkins TV receivers dried up, and Sarnoff was able to acquire the defunct venture for $500,000. That year, RCA field engineers were testing the iconoscope pickup tube linked to a transmitter installed on the roof of the Camden Research Plant. Still pictures were broadcast via ultra-high frequency over a few miles distance to a prototype set equipped with an experimental cathode ray receiving tube. It would come to be known as the Kinescope. An RCA transmitting antenna was implanted at the top of the Empire State Building, and several receivers were scattered about the New York metropolitan area in the homes of RCA technical personnel. As interest mounted, Congress passed the Communications Act of 1934 abolishing the Federal Radio Commission in favor of the new Federal Communications Commission. The word television was left out, but so was the word radio. In 1935, 
NBC renovated a small studio, 3H, at Radio City for television broadcasts. And on July 7, 1936, they went live for the first time. This is station W2XK, an experimental transmitter of the National Broadcasting Company. We are operating on a frequency of 52 megacycles by authority of the Federal Communications Commission. A test program follows. General Harvard, I'm sure this occasion must be as gratifying to you as it is to me and to the rest of us. Ever since you joined the Radio Corporation of America some 14 years ago, you have heard us talk about this new child television. You've watched it come from the cradle and learn to creep. And today, I'm glad to say, marks a new epoch in the development of this child. Two-way transmitters soon followed between New York and Philadelphia. The validity of television networking was being established. Sonoff felt that the leader must lead in all areas of this new industry, from the construction of transmitters and mobile equipment, to studio construction and networking, to equipment servicing, to the creation of entertainment and informational programming. It was a total system approach to television. As this began, RCA got the FCC to approve a Radio Manufacturers Association Engineering Committee to seek a technical consensus on an industry standard for radio and television sets. Sarnoff wanted to ensure that he could control the entire emerging television market. By 1937, the first mobile RCA television van appeared on the streets of New York, containing two cameras and a relay transmitter. It permitted mobile pickups. In July, NBC announced plans to begin experimental telecasts at Madison Square Garden prize fights. Ring announcer Joe Humphreys introduces lightweight champion Tony Canzanari. Tony, at 136 and a half pounds... But RCA's rivals amongst radio manufacturers, Philco and Zenith, knew what Sarnoff wanted to do, and also saw no reason to rush television's commercial introduction to the American market when radio sales had restored their profit margins. The FCC agreed to address the questions of technical standards, and channel allocations. Sarnoff pressed for a quick resolution. Zenith launched a trade advertising campaign warning that television was premature both for economic and technical reasons when their print ads showed Sarnoff as a televisionary ape trampling on the prostrate corpses of the radio industry. Sarnoff vowed that he'd no longer compromise. In October of 1938, at the Radio Manufacturers Association board meeting, he informed them that the inaugural program would coincide with the opening of the 1939 World's Fair. David Sarnoff was taking a huge gamble. Because there was no FCC commercial standard approval, the only license Sarnoff had was an experimental one, and advertising, therefore, wasn't allowed. His hope was that the public fervor would force the industry's hand. This is station KE2XCC at Alpine, New Jersey. Our programs this evening are in honor of the builder and owner of this station, Professor Armstrong of Columbia University, who died on February 1, 1954. Back in July of 1935, David Sarnoff asked Edward Howard Armstrong to remove his experimental FM equipment from RCA's Empire State Building Laboratory 
so that RCA could test its television system. Armstrong saw FM as a revolutionary new communication service that would make AM obsolete. Sarnoff saw it as an important advancement in sound, but not a new core technology like television. In fact, David Sarnoff wanted FM to be the audio supplement for TV. Without the backing of Sarnoff and RCA, Armstrong decided to pursue the development of FM on his own using his patent-generated fortune. After securing an experimental license from the Federal Communications Commission, Armstrong constructed an FM station just across the Hudson River from New York City in Alpine, New Jersey. There, he began operating test frequencies, mostly broadcasting classic music via station W2XMN in 1938. Armstrong displayed the network potential of FM by relaying programs from station to station over the length of the East Coast with virtually no signal deterioration. I have been asked by, the by the end of 1940, of the, the FCC had received over 500 applicants for FM licenses and had decided that the audio portion of television signals should be transmitted by FM. Commercial FM broadcasting was authorized beginning January 1, 1941. Armstrong struck patent licensing deals with all of the major radio manufacturers except RCA. According to the terms of these agreements, the manufacturers agreed to pay Armstrong 2% of all their earnings from the sales of FM receivers and related equipment. When RCA engineers soon countered with their own version of an FM system, Armstrong sued for patent infringement and conspiracy to undercut and confuse the development of FM service. Sarnoff wanted to avoid litigation. He offered Armstrong $1 million for non-exclusionary license to use the FM technology. Armstrong refused, insisting that RCA pay the same royalty as the other manufacturers. It was a decision by Armstrong that led to fierce patent battles, the destruction of his and David Sarnoff's close friendship. And over the next dozen years, his fortune, his wife, and his life. When three unlikely heroes are plucked from jail to defend the wedding of the millennium, they're sucked into an adventure of talking gargoyles, anarchist bandits, and royal betrayal. Something old, something new, something borrowed, and something that might kill you on Join the Party. Our heroes are Johnny B. Goodlight. Undying Light be with you. An overzealous warlock and everyone's magical dad. Inara Harthorn. That was a pretty sweet flip, right? Aspiring assassin and cool queer skater teen and designation TR8C. But you can call me Tracy. He is very adorable and he will murder you. And Game Master Eric, who plays everybody else. Like Stoneface, the easy riding gargoyle A. If you don't know your D20 from your D8, learn the rules of Dungeons and Dragons while listening along with our beginner track. Or if you're a gaming veteran, get straight to the action with episode one. Subscribe to Join the Party on iTunes, Acast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The party's just getting started, and you're invited. Please bring ice. Also, as an entertainment adjunct, television will supplement sound broadcasting by bringing into the home the visual images of scenes and events which up to now have come there as mind pictures conjured up by the human voice. When the 1939 World's Fair opened in Flushing Meadows, David Sarnoff was there to share the spotlight with President Franklin D. Roosevelt and New York City's Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. 
a single mobile NBC television camera unit connected from a coaxial cable to a transmitting van was placed 50 feet from the speaker's platform. In the background, it showed the fair's symbols, the trilon and the perisphere. It swept across the court of peace, panned the gathering throng, and captured the arrival of the president's motorcade. This same camera captured the first television close-up, Mayor LaGuardia, who was never the bashful sort. He casually strode up and oogled it face to face. Speaks in the court of peace. I hereby dedicate the World's Fair, the New York World's Fair of 1939, and I declare it open to all mankind. The fair opens on the 150th anniversary of the inauguration of George Washington, and the father of his country looks out towards the British Pavilion, one of the outstanding exhibits. The initial NBC television programming schedule varied from 8 to 12 hours weekly. They telecast their limited programming to about 500 sets in the New York area. What would later become NBC TV was the experimental station W2XBS. NBC presented a mix of industrial and commercial films, older independent and foreign films too, for about four hours per day during the early afternoon. They telecast an hour or so of assorted in-studio programs at night. Sporting events aired on Saturday afternoons, and no programs appeared on Sunday. Sets were priced from $395 to $675, and Sarnoff received some industry support when GE and the smaller Andrea Corporation offered sets with a 6 by 8 inch viewing screen that were aligned to NBC's broadcasting standards. Set owners were urged to mail letters and postcards expressing their program preferences. Sports soon became a favorite. Unfortunately, after three months, only 800 sets had been sold, and 5,000 were stacked in dealers and distributor warehouses. The low-end price for a set, $395 in 1939, is today the equivalent of $7,162 when adjusted for inflation. Television was a luxury item for only the most wealthy. Frustrated, Sarov aggressively slashed the price of all RCA sets by one-third. The other manufacturers soon followed, but by early 1940, it was clear that Sarnoff had miscalculated the impact of his promotional blitz. The efforts of Zenith Philco and others had succeeded in sowing doubts about the wisdom of buying expensive sets that might become obsolete if the FCC adopted a different standard for commercial service. Radio Daily called the TV launch Sarnoff's folly. It was also apparent that Philco and Zenith were more interested in ruining Sarnoff's reputation than creating a television industry. Under mounting pressure from a confused press and Congress, the FCC resumed television standard hearings in April of 1940. David Sarnoff went to Washington to convince the FCC to push the RCA standards through. But the FCC chairman, James Lawrence Fly, was an ardent New Dealer. Not only was he an anti-monopolist who wanted to ensure big business couldn't unilaterally control the television industry, thanks to formal complaints lobbied by the Mutual Broadcasting System about best business practices. Fly also desired to cut some of NBC and CBS's power within the radio industry. The FCC Commission suggested a further cycle of experiments leading up to a limited commercial telecast beginning in September of 1940. The decision was vague at best. Sarnoff went full steam ahead 
and announced that NBC would begin commercial telecasts on a regular schedule and further slash TV set prices again. The FCC balked. Fly aligned himself with anti-Sarnoff forces. On March 22, 1941, the FCC formally suspended all limited commercial authorization, accusing RCA of disregarding the intent of its order. Six weeks later, the FCC issued formal rules to break up what it felt were monopolies in radio. Its main desire was to get NBC to sell one of its networks. It also wanted to ensure that both CBS and NBC couldn't operate multiple stations in the same city. Sarnoff responded publicly that Fly was more interested in protecting RCA's competitors than getting TV off the ground. Both Fly and Sarnoff were close friends with President Roosevelt. Roosevelt suggested that the two men get together for lunch to iron out their differences, paid for by the president himself. Sarnoff politely declined. Our dispute is in the head, not the stomach, he told Roosevelt. But Fly's and the FCC's actions rallied certain members of Congress, like Senator Ernest Lundeen of Minnesota, and major members of the media, like the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and Newsweek, to Sarnoff's defense. They felt the FCC had long overstepped its bounds. After several months of meetings, it was the technicians who fashioned what the industry and government could not, a technical consensus for TV. They agreed upon a 525-line picture with a frame rate of 30 per second. For RCA, this posed little difficulty in readjusting their transmitters to a new technical standard, and they agreed to do so for all RCA TV owners, free of charge. On July 1, 1941, NBC TV launched commercial telecasting. The first commercial, over its New York station WNBT, was a bull of a clock face with a second hand ticking off a minute. Bulova paid a grand total of $4 for air fees, plus $5 for station fees. It seemed that David Sarnoff was finally winning the battle. At this time each Sunday, the National Broadcasting Company presents H.B. Calvinborn, Dean of Radio Commentators, who today will analyze and interpret the day's startling news from the Pacific, Mr. Gulfport. Good afternoon, everybody. Japan has made war on the United States without declaring it. Airplanes, presumably from aircraft carriers, have attacked the great Pearl Harbor naval base on the island of Oahu in the Hawaiian Islands and have attacked Manila, capital of the Philippines. When the news of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor reached David Sarnoff on that Sunday afternoon, December 7, 1941, his first response was to fire off a telegram to the commander-in-chief. All our facilities are ready and at your instant service. We await your commands. For the safety of the American public and to funnel all new technology into the war effort, commercial production of television equipment was soon banned, and NBC's commercial television schedule was as well. The ban would last for the duration of the war. Television would have to wait for peace. NBC will be on the air with the latest war news at the beginning of every program day and night. The British radio heard by NBC reports that the Sultan of one of the little Malay states has handed control of his country right over to the British to make it easier to repel the Japanese. A British advisor will sit with the Sultan of Kelantan 
from now until the war is all over. During World War II, radio became a tool for patriotism as ratings continued to soar. The Johnson Wax Program with Fibber McGee and Molly. There were radios for the home, for the go, and for the car. And those radios played a growing number of stations. Sponsored programs on the big networks were heavily involved in leading the charge. Two days after the attack on Pearl Harbor in Manila, one of NBC's highest-rated situation comedies, Fibber McGee and Molly, was on the air. In this episode called, I Can Get It For You Wholesale, Fibber knows a way to get all Christmas time items for 40% off. Immediately, his friends in Wistful Vista descend upon Fibber and Molly's home with requests. By the way, do you know where I can buy a large globe of the world for my office? Why, sure, Latrivia. I can get you on wholesale. How much do you want to pay for a good globe? Oh, it doesn't matter much, McGee. As long as I get a good one, things are happening so fast these days, I like to keep informed. You want a globe with Japan on it, Mr. Mayor? Why, certainly. Well, then you better get one quick. <laughs> war became a central topic in everyone's life. Many scripts were written which centered around the war itself. Breaking news would take the highest priority, and radio performers had to be ready for a news cutaway at all moments. Actress Fran Carlin explains. I was on one called This Changing World. It was a very poignant story, and the husband was sent overseas, and then a woman's trying to adapt herself to a business life and a life alone. They tried to do several shows like that. Technically, we went through some amazing kind of things because we were always on standby for news so that as the actors brought numerous colored pencils to the studio because you would have first cut, second cut, and third cut as to hap- that means, you know, the cut in the script as to what kind of an emergency broadcast might be coming on. While you were trying to emote, you would look into the control room and the director would be standing there with one finger up, which meant take the first cut and that's all you need. And you really had to have eyes in the side of your head in radio. Night, the man behind the gun is a woman. Columbia Broadcasting System presents The Man Behind the Gun, dedicated to the fighting men and women of the United States and the United Nations, and broadcast in the hope that these authentic accounts of men and women at war will bring you a better understanding of the job being done by our fighting forces everywhere in the world, and the job we have to do to keep them right. In October of 1942, CBS launched The Man Behind the Gun, dedicated to the fighting men of the United States and the United Nations. The stories were based around fact, but the names were all fictitious. William N. Robeson directed. Bob Dryden was one of the principal New York actors on the series. It was directed by a great director of his day, uh, William N. Robeson. And every effort that CBS could put into the production of a radio show was put into the production of that one. It was fantastic. None of us had had any experience with the way sound was done on this show. If the locale was on deck of a destroyer, the sound effect speakers surrounded the performing area so that 
the actors in terms of sound were completely involved. And you could really imagine with no trouble at all that you were in the North Atlantic. Two, eight, five. It wasn't a show done from a control room. William N. Robeson remembered that when the USS Boise limped into the Philadelphia Navy Yard, all shot up from the Battle of the Coral Sea in May of 1942, they went down there to interview the crew and examine the ship. The more research they did, the more accurate they could make the series. What's happened during these last few hours, not one of us will ever forget. How could you forget? You sat up all night by the radio and heard the bulletins, the flashes, the voices coming across from England. The commentators, the pilots returning from their greatest of all missions, newsboys yelling in the street, and it seemed that one world was ending and a new world beginning. You sat there and dawn began to sneak in and you thought of the hundreds of thousands of kids you'd seen in camps the past two or three years. The kids who scream and whistle when they hear a gag in a song. God bless those kids across the English Channel. Stars frequently made themselves available for the war effort. Bob Hope was noted for his many USO shows. It's the front porch of Tokyo with a death's head on the welcome mat. It's volcanic dust that bites the lungs, sulfur smoke that burns them, hot lava and hot lead, the world's toughest fight. By comparison to EO, two days in the real hell would be like a weekend at Lake Arrowhead. You know, it took Betsy Ross just a bit of cotton bunting to make the first American flag. And, mister, let's never forget what it's taken the Marine Corps to hoist that bit of bunting on EO Jima. Good night, fellas. And I remember a really fabulous show during the war that originated in Hollywood where most of the big stars did their own shows. It was called Command Performance, and G.I.s would write in and ask for something like, uh, I would like to hear Rita Hayworth sigh. So the MC, who might be Orson Welles or Bob Hope, would say, And now by Command Performance, Miss Rita Hayworth will sigh for Private Joe Smith in Sicily. And she'd get up to the microphone and she'd go... And thank you, Miss Rita Hayworth. And she'd step down. The show comedian Gary Moore was referring to, Command Performance, took to the airwaves on March 1st, 1941, over a special service division of the War Department called the Armed Forces Radio Service. Loaded by time, the program had an estimated weekly budget of $75,000. This episode, broadcast on February 15, 1945, was a musical spoof called Dick Tracy in B-flat. Okay there, gang, this is Harry Bonzel reminding you that it's time to join us once again for another session dedicated to answering your request to command performance, Armed Forces Radio, Los Angeles, USA. Now, it's come to our attention that a lot of you guys have been reading comic books while our shows are on. Now, we realize that you men and women in the Army, Navy, Coast Guard, and Marines can do exactly as you please at any time. <laughs> but uh, command performance hates to lose any listeners. We're really very jealous that way. So for you guys who like comic strips, tonight we're going to devote our entire time to a real super-duper two-fisted He-Man thriller. One of your real big favorites, Dick Tracy. <laughs> I think Command Performance has assembled the greatest cast of honest Joes, thieves, murderers, and cutthroats in radio history. Here they are in the order of their appearance. No applause, please. Dick Tracy. Mr. Bing Crosby. Tess Trueheart. Miss Dinah Shore. Oh, Judge Hooper. <laughs> That's me. The police chief. Mr. Jerry Colonna. 
Flat top, Mr. Robert Hope. <laughs> Vitamin Flintheart, Mr. Frank Morgan. The Summer Sisters, Miss Andrew Sisters. The Mole, Mr. James Durante, Esquire. <laughs> Snowflake, Miss Judy Garland. Jakey, Master Frankie Sinatra. <laughs> Gravel Gertie, Miss Cass Daly. <laughs> and so it's on with the first comic strip operetta of all time, Dick Tracy in B-flat, or, for goodness sakes, isn't he ever going to marry Tess Trueheart? <laughs> Ready, maestro. Overture. <laughs> Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. It's half past eight. It's half past eight, New York time. Time to wake up America and stump the experts. Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. Each week at this time, Lucky Strike gives you a chance to test your wits against those of four super wits. You provide the questions and our experts try to answer them. Remember, for every question used... Lucky Strike will give you not only $10 in war stamps, but a set of the 12-volume Britannica Junior Encyclopedia. If the question is muffed, you get the Junior Britannica, plus a $50 war bond, plus a 24-volume set of the regular Encyclopedia Britannica. Send your questions to Information Please, 480 Lexington Avenue, New York City. Lucky Strike Green has gone to war. David Sornoff, too, went to war. He served on General Eisenhower's communication staff arranging expanded radio circuits for NBC to transmit news from the invasion of France in June of 1944. In France, Sarnoff arranged for the restoration of the Nazi-destroyed station Radio France and oversaw the construction of a radio transmitter powerful enough to reach all of the Allied forces in Europe, called Radio Free Europe. In recognition for his achievements, Sarnoff was decorated with the Legion of Merit on October 11, 1944. This is your FBI. <laughs> Public safety was also an important theme for radio drama during the war. In November of 1944, CBS launched The FBI and Peace and War, sponsored by Lava Soap. And in April of 1945, ABC launched This Is Your FBI, sponsored by the Equitable Life Assurance Society. The first episode was entitled Espionage. These two great institutions are dedicated to the protection of you... Less than a month later, Adolf Hitler committed suicide. Germany officially surrendered on May 8th. The Allied armies, through sacrifice and devotion, and with God's help, have wrung from Germany a final and unconditional surrender. Japan officially surrendered on August 14th after atomic bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. American servicemen and women were heading home. The war was finally over, just in time for the end of summer. Some of us keep our nose to the grindstone, our ear to the ground, an eye to the future. Huh? Television's just around the corner, you know. Oh, Sam. <laughs> Come here, sweetheart. You look lovely in it. Come here. Have a wonderful time. 
Mary, no! God, let like, go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away! no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. If I had learned anything about programming and personalities on the air by the 1930s, I think it was that you had to pull things in out of the blue sky. In other words, to hope and expect to find something somewhere without having it introduced to you formally. During World War II, William S. Paley served as director of radio operations of the Psychological Warfare Branch in the Office of War Information at Allied Force Headquarters in London. He held the rank of colonel. While based in England during the war, Paley came to know and befriend Edward R. Murrow, CBS's head of European news, who expanded the news division's foreign coverage with a team of war correspondents, later known as the Murrow Boys. Paley had left Paul Keston, Frank Stanton, and Joe Ream in charge of CBS while he was gone. The war had raised many questions in Paley's mind, but one thing he knew for sure, he wasn't going to handle all of the management details as he had done before the war. When Paley got back in 1946, he reorganized the company's structure and appointed Frank Stanton as president to deal with the day-to-day -day management problems. I suppose that the radio network really came into its own after World War II when we went very heavily into doing our own programs. Up until that time, almost all of the programs in the schedule were produced by outside organizations, bought by the advertiser, delivered to us by the advertising agency and the advertiser was really in control of the schedule. When Mr. Paley came back from the war, he seized that opportunity to embark upon the development of our own programs, which would be owned by the company and sold to the advertiser. With that one concept and the implementation of it, network radio changed from an advertiser-dominated medium to a broadcaster-dominated medium. Paley named himself chairman of the board and reserved most of his time for programming matters, the lifeblood of the network, and his specialty. Despite meddling from the FCC in the form of a blue book, a manual that detailed the broadcaster's programming obligations to the public, Paley continued to believe that the network should devote a substantial amount of airtime to controversial issues and that any discussion on these issues should be balanced. CBS's director of radio talks was Miss Helen Sousa, a role she held for 21 years, beginning in 1937. Just before World War II, she created, produced, and hosted one of the first roundtable discussion programs on television called Table Talk with Helen Sousa. 
She was also known for teaching famous men of industry how to be better public speakers. Because Tom Dewey, he didn't mumble in his beard, but he had a few little eccentricities weaving back and forth and that sort of thing. I taught Ed Stettinius how to speak while he was chairman of the board of the U.S. Steel before he was secretary of state. Ms. Sousa was the CBS liaison with the White House and Congress and attended political conventions of both parties. In 1945, she led the CBS delegation to the San Francisco conference that heralded the formation of the United Nations. During that time, she oversaw as many as 300 broadcasts a year addressing such topics as government, labor, education, religion, civil rights, and international matters. I wish you could see the pictures on these walls. I know you have scheduled talks with all of them. Yes, I think all, looking around, all of them. But they all... Douglas Fairbanks. Yes, there's Douglas Fairbanks, and over there is Douglas Fairbanks with Elsa Maxwell in the, on a program she had. Elsa LaGuardia. Oh, that was a very amusing situation. Yes, it's, I'm talking and he isn't, and that was the first time such a thing had ever happened. <laughs> he listened. William Paley knew that fact always had to be kept separate from opinion, and they both knew that new directions and programming required new blood. Edward R. Murrow was appointed Vice President of News and Public Affairs. It had been the news group at CBS that, in the lead-up and during the war, vaulted the network to become number one in news and information. Like this piece with Murrow, Charles Collingwood, George Hicks, Gene Ryder, from a portable recorder during World War II. This is London. Late on the afternoon of D-Day, Charles Collingwood took his recording gear in a little 36-foot LCVP onto a French beach. Here is part of the recording. Gene Ryder and I are, and everybody on this little boat are soaked absolutely to the skin. You might tell the Navy Department we owe them one recorder. Gene? Gene is referring to the fact that we took our recording machine, which the Navy has led us along with us here, and it has been absolutely inundated with the spray. Somehow or other, Gene has made it work. I don't know what, he was down there polishing it with his handkerchief. Gene says he doesn't know how he made it work either. Here we go again, another plane's come over. Right over our port side. Looks like we're going to have a night tonight. Another one coming over. Something burning is falling down through the sky and circling down. Maybe a hit plane. Here we go. They got one. They got one. We got that one. We got it right here. Did we? Yeah. Yet, after the war, CBS had once again fallen behind in the ratings battle, as 12 of the top 15 radio shows were on NBC. The bottom line was still that CBS would never be as strong as NBC until they started producing their own entertainment programs and creating their own broadcasting icons. Escape! You 
are located on a remote plantation in the crawling Amazon jungle. And an immense army of ravenous ants is closing in on you, swarming in to eat you alive. A deadly black army from which there is no escape. By the end of 1947, CBS had put together 36 new radio programs, including The Bill Goodwin Show, Wendy Warren in the News, Strike It Rich, Escape, The Adventures of Christopher Wells, and Joan Davis Time. Few were sponsored. It also established a news documentary unit to look at the subjects that were most affecting Americans at the time. Also in 1947, television was fast becoming a programming factor. That year, Paley negotiated a $20 million loan from the Equitable Assurance Society so that CBS would have the resources to move fully into TV. Another major factor was the networks beginning to take control of the programs themselves. For years, the advertiser and its agency had controlled the show. But Paley knew that by creating its own programming, CBS would be able to dictate its terms to potential advertisers. Paley wanted to be number one. In order to do so, he'd have to appeal to the masses and create an avenue for talent to do so as well. In the meantime, CBS might be forced to spend millions on network-sustained programs without any assurance of finding a sponsor to absorb these costs. Luckily, there was already one man on the air at CBS who was excelling in all of these ways. Now, in order to understand this career, you have to you have to realize that the last thing I ever had on my mind was stardom when I started out. It never occurred to me that I would be a star ever, anytime. I just wanted to be the man who did the best job of doing whatever he was assigned to do. Whether it was uh, describing a, a parade or a football game or announcing for a program or whatever it was in the beginning. And they gave me the early morning chore of playing the records and telling the time. And, and uh, it, it was just that I tried to make it entertaining. On April 30th, 1945, shortly before Germany surrendered, Arthur Godfrey Time debuted on CBS. It was a daily mid-morning variety show with MC Arthur Godfrey. In 1946, a second show was added, Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts. This program was a primetime Tuesday evening show. Longtime CBS journalist and host Andy Rooney remembered Godfrey's popularity. He invented a whole style of radio, and people don't realize how important he was. And some of the people who are still popular owe their style to Godfrey. He invented Jack Parr, who's gone. He invented probably Dave Garraway. He invented Johnny Carson, in, in a sense. Godfrey has talked more words to more people than any person who ever lived because he was on for an hour and a half simulcast a phrase we used to use meaning both radio and television at the same time for an hour and a half five days a week he was on an hour wednesday night arthur godfrey and his friends which was always one of the top rated shows either one two or three and then talent scouts was often number one that was half an hour monday night 
And then there was a Best of Arthur Godfrey, which was just a collection of stuff taken from edited out of the week uh, on half an hour on Saturdays. And nobody could have done it who didn't take it as easily as he did. In the late 1930s, he'd been hosting a local CBS show in Washington, D.C. on WJSV, which later became WTOP, squirreled away in an all-night slot, playing records and chatting. That's the way it has to be. It isn't one of those things where you just come up because you got a yen to get on the radio. Audiences began to gravitate towards his informal approach and his natural humor. Sales on products Godfrey pitched on the air began to rise. One of his early successes was an off-the-cuff pitch he spoke for a department store sale on ladies' black lace panties. Man, my face is red, Godfrey told his audience. The next day, the store was mobbed with women looking for the underwear that made Godfrey blush. It occurred to me that the only way you could achieve any longevity in our business was to grow, to grow in stature, to grow in interest. And so I tried to learn many different things, and to learn all about a lot of different things, so that I could speak with some sort of authority about them, or at least some familiarity with them, and keep my interests going uh, and growing, and therefore perhaps I would, I would intrigue some people to stay with me. Then, of course, the, the big thing that I depended upon always was integrity, because I was positive that the only way in the world a man could sell is to sell himself first. And so I decided that uh, I could be your companion, your confidant, the man upon whom you could, in, in whom you could place some trust. He also started this huge trend that no one ever considered possible before of being disrespectful of advertisers. Says here, Arthur, please announce that there will be a midnight show tonight of the women. And how about the women treating the men to this show? <laughs> it says, talking about style, wait till you see that gorgeous $250 nightgown that is part of the Technicolor fashion show and the new picture, the women. Fancy that, paying $250 for a nighty. Godfrey was a real guy. He was talking to people, not performing in front of them. In April of 1941, CBS's New York affiliate, WABC, which later became WCBS, picked up Godfrey's local Washington show for a national broadcast. The next October 4th, he began announcing on Fred Allen's Texaco Star Theater when the show switched to a 30-minute format. He became so popular amongst New Yorkers that the Manhattan audiences applauded loudly when his name was announced on the network. Come in. Is Mr. Allen here? Why, I'm Fred Allen. I saw your ad in the Times. The Times? You don't look like a man who reads the Times. <laughs> no, I'm strictly a Joe Palooka man. Well, I don't know if we can use another Palooka on this program, sir. I ought to make a great radio announcer. Well, what makes you think so? I've tried everything else and failed. What, uh, what is your name, sir? Godfrey. Arthur Godfrey. Well, all right. You have a portable clack, I see. <laughs> well, all right, Mr. <laughs> all right, Mr. Godfrey, I, uh, I can use an announcer on the program. Now, here is one of our commercials. Would you mind reading this over? I forgot to tell you. I can't read. <laughs> you want to be an announcer and you can't read? 
You think it'll hold me back? No, not on this program. <laughs> I tell you what, you can put our message to motorists in your own words, Mr. Godfrey. You have some words of... Because every mile you drive uses up a part of America's stockpile of rubber in the tires of your car. That's why Uncle Sam is asking us to drive only when we have to. And to keep that speedometer needle under 35. To save rubber and keep our cars in service for the transportation we must have. Because, brother, if you is careless today, you are going to be carless tomorrow. Well, that's excellent, Mr. Godfrey. But this, after all, is the Texaco show. Could you work in a sly reference to Texaco dealers, could you? <laughs> Get a load of this, Fred. Your Texaco dealer is the man who can help you save rubber. When he checks the pressure and the condition of your tires regularly, not every once in a while, but regularly, those tires are going to last longer. What's more, your car's going to last longer, too, when a Texaco dealer takes care of it. How am I doing? Mediocre? No, but you're working up to it. <laughs> Well, how's this? Now, right now, when every mile counts in gasoline consumption, use your Texaco dealer's high-quality gasoline, Texaco Fire Chief or Premium Texaco Sky Chief. And your parting shot, Mr. Godfrey. Make a Texaco dealer your car warden. He'll help you care for your car for your country. Mr. Godfrey, the job is yours. Unfortunately... Alan and Godfrey didn't mix well on the air, and Alan had to drop him after six weeks. It was only a minor setback, though. Godfrey continued to appear on special broadcasts on CBS, and his star catapulted when he was a tearful special reporter for Franklin D. Roosevelt's funeral coverage in April of 1945. Positioned near the White House, he gave a detailed and emotionally wrought description of the procession. May God give me strength to do this. Including of the caisson carrying the president's body. These horses. Now, here, here's the caisson beneath us now. And there is the flag-draped coffin resting on this black caisson in a dull black. The horses with black blankets under their saddles. The horses on the right side, unmounted. The riders on the left. You'll see this in the pictorial news pictures, in the, in the, in the movie-tone news, as I hope. And it's moving ever so slowly, ever so slowly as the crowd stands, the waves and wax and men in uniform along the streets that salute. And most generally, folks having as tough a time as I am trying to see it. The poignancy and honesty with which Godfrey spoke further endeared him to the American public. Arthur Godfrey Time debuted 16 days later. By 1948, he'd become one of the most powerful broadcasters on radio. He could hire or fire someone with a single sentence. He later did. On his Talent Scouts broadcast, his sense of what would play in Heartland America was almost flawless. Three or four acts were judged by studio audiences. Winners were given national exposure on Godfrey's morning show. The ones Godfrey liked best might get asked to join his regular cast of Little Godfrey's. The McGuire sisters and the Cordettes both came out of talent scouts. And thanks to Godfrey, performers like Jeanette Davis, Marion Marlowe, and Frank Parker all enjoyed more success than ever before. It's 
Arthur Godfrey time. Yeah, yeah. CBS estimated that he was heard by over 40 million people per week. Yes, it's Arthur Godfrey time with all the little Godfreys. Jeanette Davis, Marshall Young, Frank Saunders, the Earlier in the 1940s, there was strong interest in the new FM band by station owners, but construction restrictions that went into place during World War II limited the growth of the new service. During the war, Edwin Howard Armstrong also turned over all his patents for use by the government. Many of the communication systems employed by the U.S. Army during World War II used FM, and frequency modulation superiority to amplitude modulation was readily apparent. Although the Germans had the superior Panzer tanks, they were equipped with AM, whereas the U.S. Sherman tanks were equipped with SCR-508 or 528 FM transmitters. These FM transmitters sent out power of 25 watts between 20 to 27.9 megahertz. It gave the U.S. previously unattainable reduction of the effects of ignition and other motor noises, which played havoc on AM transmitters. The Germans' communication systems often jammed. As the war wound down, the FCC undertook a number of investigations on spectrum allocation and use. It was feared that the lowest layers of the Earth's atmosphere, an ionized atmospheric gas that resides on the Earth between 50 and 100 miles off the ground, could cause bad interference on FM. Armstrong contested that there was nothing to suggest this was possible. Other scientists stepped in and all agreed. Then, a particularly controversial proposal, spearheaded by RCA, was that the FM band needed to be shifted to higher frequencies in order to avoid this potential problem. The change was also thought to have been favored by AT&T, as the elimination of FM relaying stations would require radio stations to continue to lease wired links from the company. The FCC made its decision final on June 27, 1945, shifting FM service higher in the VHF band, up to 88 to 108 megahertz. This made more than 50 FM radio station transmitters and half a million FM receivers obsolete after a three-year transition period. In the end, the scientists and engineers lost to the big corporation. Although Armstrong contested them, these actions by the FCC nearly terminated FM radio broadcasting for more than a decade, while the industry turned to developing television and expanding AM. Meanwhile, unwilling to pay Armstrong the royalties he sought, RCA began developing FM circuits of its own, which its engineers claimed did not use Armstrong's patents. By using these circuits, RCA would not have to pay Armstrong any royalties on the sale of TV sets. All TV sets used FM for the audio portion of their signal. RCA convinced other TV manufacturers to do the same. Curiously, Television Channel 1, which in 1946 was an experimental TV station used by NBC, operated its FM audio on a frequency of 44 to 50 megahertz. Apparently, the concerns RCA had for FM radio didn't translate to their TV production. In 1948, Armstrong filed suit against RCA and NBC, accusing them of patent infringement and deliberately setting out to oppose and impair the value of his invention. 
although he was confident that the suit would be successful and result in a major monetary award. The protracted legal maneuvering that followed eventually began to impair his finances, especially after his primary patents expired in late 1950. That was RCA's trial strategy, to delay the proceedings as long as possible, to a date after the expiration of Armstrong's patents. As wealthy as Armstrong had made himself with his inventions, he lacked the capital of a giant corporation. With no royalty revenues, he would soon be unable to continue prosecuting the case. The strategy worked. By 1952, Armstrong had run out of money and had to rely on credit to pay his lawyers. In August of 1953, Armstrong proposed to settle the suit with RCA, seeking $3.4 million over a 10-year period. In December, RCA responded by agreeing to pay $200,000 initially, with an option to pay more the next year if they chose. It meant that they could possibly get Armstrong to agree and only have to pay him $200,000 in total. Armstrong rejected the offer. But the years of litigation had taken their toll. David Sarnoff, once his closest ally, had become his most bitter enemy. In a fit of rage in November of 1953, Armstrong took his anger out on Marion, his wife of over 30 years, who he'd met while visiting his friend David Sarnoff at work one day, when Marion was employed as his secretary. She fled their apartment at the River House in New York City. Bankrupt and ashamed by his actions, on the evening of the 31st of January, 1954, Armstrong wrote a note to Marion apologizing. He then put on his heavy trademark winter coat, his gloves, and his hat, opened the window of their 13th floor apartment, and stepped out. The next morning, an employee found his body on a third floor balcony. He was 63. So I moved, and I didn't want to leave NBC. I loved NBC, but I had to make some kind of a deal where I could make some money, because here I was getting a terrific salary, and was all salary, and I couldn't make a deal for a company. Well, I wouldn't care if I got a million dollars a week. That wouldn't do me any good. What good would that be? With income the income tax, tax that, right? Well, sure. Right. So the ones that made me the deal and came right through with it quick was CBS. Then, of course, when NBC realized I was going to go, then they were willing to make a deal, but I didn't want to play one against the other, so I merely took CBS. By 1948, CBS chairman William S. Paley understood that programmers alone could not develop programs that would enable CBS to surpass NBC. Stars were celebrities, and they were the stuff of high ratings. NBC had most of the top stars. At the same time, NBC executive management's relationship with their top stars was at times frosty, like with Fred Allen, who was consistently battling with NBC over airtime, freedom of speech, and continued to get cut off for running too long. In 
your troubles with radio executives came to a head one night when your Sunday night show was cut off the Well, many executives didn't come to a head, and that was our problem there. <laughs> that was our great problem in the, those days. One summer day in 1948, Paley received a proposal from Lou Wasserman and Taft Schreiber, the president and vice president of the Music Corporation of America, the world's largest talent agency. They wanted to know if CBS would be interested in buying the Amos and Andy show, which had been running on NBC radio for 19 years. The proposal revolved around money. At the time, tax laws indicated that all taxpayers had to give the government 77% of all income over $70,000. Big stars were making big money, but seeing very little of it. But if an entertainer organized himself or herself as a corporation and sold their show to the network, they'd be eligible to be taxed as capital gains, and therefore at a much lower rate of 25%. Paley jumped at the chance. In September of 1948, CBS announced that Amos and Andy would be moving over. Their first broadcast was on October 10th. Shortly after, to Paley's huge surprise, Lou Wasserman phoned again and asked him if CBS would be interested in purchasing the Jack Benny program. CBS. Well, CBS had uh, generally rated NBC at that time, didn't they, with these uh, production No, NBC, NBC was, the, yeah, once I got on, but NBC was really the first network. Then when I moved over, a lot of shows moved over. Mm -hmm. So that made really CBS come up on top. Yeah. Really I made the millions CBS by that move, which I didn't know or didn't think, you know. Jack Benny had been radio's king for the past 16 years. He'd organized his activities into a corporation called Amusement Enterprises, Inc. Paley and Wasserman negotiated an agreement for CBS to buy Amusement Enterprises for $2.26 million. NBC got word and dispatched its president, Niles Trammell, to California with orders to keep Benny at NBC. But David Sarnoff was appalled that any one entertainer could demand so much money. He felt that it was the technology and the corporation that allowed the medium to go. Entertainers and especially something as lowbrow as a comedian, even one like Jack Benny, was replaceable. It was the biggest mistake of David Sarnoff's career. He'd never even bothered to meet Jack Benny, although Benny had been NBC's highest-rated show for most of the past decade and a half. When William Paley heard that NBC president Niles Trammell was on his way to California, Paley called Benny directly. Paley wanted to meet Benny in person. Benny was impressed and taken aback, with the head of the network giving him such treatment. He was also excited and told Paley to come out to Los Angeles to talk in person, also mentioning he could bring the boys. If Benny jumped, so would a bunch of other disgruntled NBC stars. Paley and CBS counsel Ralph Collin flew to Los Angeles and set up house at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Ironically, David Sarnoff was there at the exact same time, trying to ensure NBC president Niles Trammell would secure the deal with Benny. NBC responded with a major counteroffer to Benny, totaling twice the value of CBS's offer. However, Lou Wasserman again intervened, obtained the NBC contract, changed every mention from NBC to CBS, and re-offered the deal to Benny, who then signed it. Reportedly, the personal attention given to Benny by CBS executives was enough to provide the deciding factor. Sarnoff was putting his faith in his staff and in RCA-NBC's technical facilities. He'd also received incorrect advice from his lawyer, John Cahill, 
that the IRS would never allow capital gains measures to go through. He stayed his hand. Paley, however, also had to convince Benny's sponsor, the American Tobacco Company, the makers of Lucky Strike cigarettes, to make the move. He did so by guaranteeing American Tobacco and their agency, BBD&O, that CBS would compensate them financially to the tune of $3,000 for every ratings point lost after the migration. Such a drastic move proved that CBS was not planning to merely buy out NBC's talent, but hoped to surpass NBC's success with the same talent. Floored that Paley would offer such a proposal, all parties agreed immediately. Just before Christmas on December 23, 1948, CBS broadcast a closed-circuit press conference to their staff announcing the switch. David Sarnoff did nothing. In this special closed-circuit broadcast to the managers and staffs of all CBS stations, Mr. Paley has asked that he might be the first to speak to you. Gentlemen, Mr. Paley. I have asked to speak first so that I might have the pleasure of introducing Jack Benny. In a few moments, we'll pick up Jack Benny and Amos and Andy, too, speaking in Hollywood. But before we do that, I want to take the opportunity to say something else. It is in many ways, I think, the most significant thing I could say here, and that CBS, in fact, can say to the world. It is not about the developments of the past few weeks which have happily resulted in bringing Benny to CBS so soon after Amos and Andy. We all can see what this means to our Sunday night schedule and to our competitive strength and prestige as a network. But I'm thinking of something more important. It's the network Jack Benny is coming to, the network we are today. CBS is now the leader, today, not tomorrow. That is what I take deepest pride in as I talk to you, in the fact that CBS today, all of you, Benny was Already true to his word. Most large radio. weekly shows took June through September off. At the beginning of the fall, 1949 season, Burns and Allen, Red Skelton, and Edgar Bergen all jumped. Bing Crosby, who'd left NBC in 1946 for ABC, also came over. The following year, Groucho Marx and Frank Sinatra both migrated. Speaking at an annual meeting of RCA shareholders shortly after the raids, David Sarnoff responded to grumbles by saying that leadership built over years on a foundation of solid service cannot be snatched overnight by a few high-priced comedians. Leadership is not a laughing matter. By the end of 1949, CBS would tout 12 of the top 15 radio shows by ratings. David Sarnoff had felt that the emergence of television as a medium would be enough to keep NBC as the number one network. What he failed to realize is that people tuned into the radio and turned on the TV for the programming, not the technology. CBS was able to use $60 million of the money it earned from radio revenue to help get their television network off the ground. They not only captured the radio ratings lead in 1949, but held on to that lead right into television and for the next 15 years. Ironically, the one comedian who'd had the most problems with NBC executives, Fred Allen, stayed put. Next week our guest will be Rudy Valley, and next week I will still be on this network. No other comedian can make that statement. <laughs> the CBS talent raids 
as they've come to be known, created direct connections with talent, and gave the network more control over their program decisions. The days of sponsors and advertising agencies making show decisions was officially over. This is Ali Silva of Fireside Mystery Theater, coming to you at a time of great peril. Some fiend has tied me to a rope dangling just a few feet over a giant boiling cauldron of... What is that? It smells like gazpacho? But gazpacho is supposed to be served cold. Oh, whatever. Why would I put myself in such a situation? Because we at Fireside Mystery Theater will do whatever it takes to create exciting audio drama. Enjoy our acclaimed anthology series of original eerie radio plays, performed before a live audience by a full cast of magnificent actors and a crew of amazing musicians and technicians. Just go to FiresideMysteryTheater.com for show listings, info about us, and links to our podcast. Take a listen for yourself today and find out why our podcast is among one of the top audio drama series out there. Oh, brother. That villain is cutting my rope. Well, that must mean my time is up. So tune in and subscribe to the Fireside Mystery Theater podcast. Oh, and be sure to mind the shadow. It's the Martin and Lewis Show. After much of NBC's headline talent jumped, RCA David Saron and the many NBC vice presidents realized they needed to find new talent. $1.5 million were allocated towards new programming. In December of 1948, they announced their first acquisition, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. The two had become a smash hit on stage in clubs across the country. The past August, they'd made their Hollywood debut at Slapsy Maxi's and soon guest starred on three episodes of the Texaco Star Theater on TV. On December 21, 1948, the duo recorded an audition program with Lucille Ball. Yeah? Lucille! Hey, Lucille! <laughs> Will you stop tugging at my skirt? I just wanted you to know I'm still here. Lewis is the name. Jerry Lewis, they call me. Don't stop, Lucille. Tell them off. Good. All right. <laughs> You're right. Dean Martin, how could you have slugged poor Jerry when you look so, so handsome with those soft eyes and long, long lashes? Yes? Hey, Lucille! Shut up, you little schnook. <laughs> NBC picked up the series for $10,000. The stars would receive $1,000 apiece. NBC marketed the team as the next big sensation in radio. In the lead-up to the premiere, Martin and Lewis appear on The March of Dimes, The Chesterfield Supper Club, The Seal Test Variety Theater, and The Bob Hope Show, finally debuting on April 3rd, 1949. Say, never mind, I've got to go now. See you at the party tonight. Well, okay, all kidding aside, uh, it was nice of you, Bob, to come down and help us get started. We really appreciate it. While we're talking this way, Bob, there's something Dean and I have been waiting, wanting to say to you for a long time. <laughs> What's that, Jerry? <laughs> well, Bob... We don't know what we'd have done without you since we arrived in Hollywood. You've always been willing to give us a helping hand when we lack courage and confidence. There was always you to go to. We could confide in you when we feel blue and all alone in the world. We could come to you with our troubles. And Bob? Yeah? You're the type of guy we've always wanted for a mother. The show was a flop. The team was concurrently guest appearing in a debuting 
My Friend Irma film adaptation of the Top 5 CBS radio series. They had to plug their CBS-inspired film on NBC. No sponsor was interested in advertising such a visual team on a sound-only medium. They switched broadcasting locations from Hollywood to New York and back, changed writers, and brought in characters. Nothing worked, and NBC pulled the plug after the September 6th broadcast. But in the interim, the critics panned everything about the My Friend Irma film, except Martin and Lewis. NBC brought back the show on Friday, October 7th at 8.30 p.m. Thirteen additional weeks of no sponsorship ensued. NBC claimed that 14 sponsored had offered their services for the team as a television show, but Dean and Jerry declined, wanting to make it on radio first. Radio and TV life called them blind. They were a hit with all the live crowds, but something was missing over the air. NBC finally canceled them for good on January 30th, 1950. For the next hour and 30 minutes, this program will present in person such bright stars as... Uh, Louis Armstrong! Bob Hope! Deborah Carr! Frankie Lane! Gary Lewis! Dean Martin! Charlie McGuire! Jimmy Wallington! Meredith Wilson! And my name, darlings, is Tallulah Bankhead. On November 5th, 1950, at 6 p.m., NBC, in an attempt to revive the ratings in its Sunday night time slot, launched a new 90-minute star-studded program called The Big Show. Each episode cost over $100,000 to produce, and hopes were high. Martin Lewis appeared twice, while simultaneously becoming a regular act on TV's Colgate Comedy Hour, which had over 60 million weekly viewers. By the summer of 1951, they'd become showbiz's biggest act, with both blockbuster film roles and a touring act selling out venues everywhere. They were ready to jump back into radio. NBC hired Ed Simmons and Norman Lear, Martin and Lewis's comedy writers, to write the new program. Dick Mack was the director. NBC offered it as part of their new multi-sponsor experiment called Operation Tandem. Chesterfield cigarettes and Asin tablets and the makers of Chiclets Gum signed on. The show premiered on October 5, 1951 to great reviews. Readers of TV Radio Life voted it their favorite comedy show of 1952. And on February 24, 1953, Marilyn Monroe was the guest for a closing dramatization. And now, folks, comes the real special part of our program, the happy time when we introduce our guest star. Of course, tonight it's especially happy because we have Marilyn Monroe. As I told you, Jerry doesn't know about it, so it's going to be a complete surprise. And uh, here comes Jerry. Dean, who is it, Dean? Who? Our guest, Dean, who? Is it? Guests are who? Well, I'll give you a hint. If I were an artist, I'd like to do her in oil. You'd like to do her in oil? <laughs> yeah, now who's our guest star? Sardine. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Look, it takes the most beautiful legs in the world, the most beautiful figure in the world, and the most beautiful face in the world, and put them all together. Now, what you got? The ugliest woman in the world. How come? You got me so excited, I put everything in the wrong place. <laughs> Well, this girl has everything in the right place. Jerry, every once in a while, a meteor flashes through the skies and falls into the ocean. Fortunately for us, the ball of fire we have as our guest missed the ocean and landed at 20th Century Fox. So, I give you the two most exciting words in the modern dictionary. Marilyn Monroe!
Thanks, Dean. That was a very flattering introduction. Well, you deserve it, Miss Maron. <laughs> Dean, look at your script. It's Monroe. I'm looking at you. It's my own. <laughs> right, Jeff? zippity doo da dee dee Get a load of the dress she's wearing, Dean. Two armholes loosely tied together. I'll be what a dress. Oh, it's nothing much. Just... <laughs> just something I threw on. You almost missed, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. Dean, thanks, boys. Do you really think this gown does something for me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it does a lot more for us. What is, well, what is it made of? Silk? As a matter of fact, it's just plain cotton. Cotton? I see more cotton on top of a bottle of aspirin. I'd better talk to the wardrobe mistress about this dress. It's so tight, I nearly wore myself out putting it on. Poor girl. Are you all in? Gosh. I hope so. Gee, Miss Monroe, Dean and I saw your last picture in Niagara. It was a darb, a positive darb. <laughs> what, what was the audience reaction to the picture in the theater? After your first scene, uh, they served the Hershey bars in Dixie Cups. Dean. Yes? You better concentrate on the script. It's your turn. Oh. <laughs> We had a cocktail party at my house with a bartender and everything, and we showed home movies of your picture, Miss Monroe. Now, you're not going to tell me that when I came on the screen that the ice and the drinks melted. Oh, no, that would be silly. <laughs> <laughs> the bartender melted. Oh, you fellas are just kidding. Kidding? Remember the scene where you were kissing your boyfriend? Yes. Right in the middle, my canary threw himself at the cat. <laughs> Uh, Miss Monroe, if you go out with me after the show, I'll buy you a bottle of perfume. You're wasting your time, dear. Marilyn would rather go out with somebody like me. That's right. I'm a blonde, and I like to go out with tall, dark, handsome men. You see, opposites attract. Then you'll love me. I'm just the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Jerry, you're a man, and I'm a woman. Now that we've chosen up sides, let's play. <laughs> Don't you give up, Jer. Marilyn prefers me. I've gone out with women who wouldn't even look at you. So what? I've gone out with women who wouldn't look at me either. <laughs> okay, Jerry. Supposing I do go out with you, what'll we do? Well, we get in my car and drive up Lookout Mountain. And when we get to the top... Yes? Look out! <laughs> no, Jerry. If I went out with you, it might get into the newspaper. And you know how some newspapers would do anything for a story. Well, we do know about that type of newspaper, Marilyn, but we can paint a better picture if we dramatize it. So, Fenneman, start dramatizing. The Chesterfield Biome by the Carton Players present Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, and Marilyn Monroe in a dramatic newspaper yarn. It's the story of a cold-blooded newspaper editor who has no friends, but who is loved by Marilyn Monroe, entitled... So who needs friends? <laughs> But the show did not return to NBC Radio after the summer of 1953, 
for the 1953-54 season. By then, NBC, CBS, and ABC, and the ad agencies began to pull their advertising money out of radio and pour it all into television. The American radio drama would never be the same. Personally, I never was a good company man. The way I got on the air was I took my last few dollars in New York and got a cast together and rented a 16-inch disc-making machine and put together a broadcast and brought it into Lewis Titterton, the very erudite literary head of the network. I could go on with that one. Anyway, he listened to it. I brought the playback machine, put it on the table. He listened to it, said not a word, picked up the record, disappeared. He went up to see General Sarnov. Within an hour, he came back and he said to me, you're going on the air from 8.30 to 9 on the full network. Congratulations. Next time on Breaking Walls, the simple art of macabre, as we hear from writers, producers, directors, and actors that excelled in horror, mystery, thriller, and murder on what made their hearts tick and what made their hearts stop. The reading material featured in today's episode was The General, David Sarnoff and the Rise of the Communication Industry by Kenneth Bilby, The Encyclopedia of Old Time Radio by John Dunning, Empire, William S. Paley and the Making of CBS by Louis J. Paper, The Museum of Broadcast Communications Encyclopedia of Radio by Christopher H. Sterling, and The Network by Scott Woolley. Jack Benny was with Chuck Shaden on September 3, 1970, at the Mill Run Playhouse in Niles, Illinois. This interview from early in Chuck's career is one of my favorites, and you can stream that and many others with the Golden Age radio stars from Chuck's almost 40-year career at his website, speakingofradio.com. By the way, subscribe to his podcast, Chuck Shaden's Memory Lane. I subscribe on iTunes. Selected music featured in today's episode was Mr. Lucky by Cy Zentner, Begin the Begin by Artie Shaw and his orchestra, and Seance on a Wet Afternoon, arranged by John Barry. I'd like to thank our sponsors. And we've got a new one, Join the Party, a collaborative storytelling and role-playing podcast with adventure, intrigue, magic, and drama under the umbrella of Multitude Productions. Find out more information at their site, multitude.productions. Thank you to our other two sponsors, the Fireside Mystery Theater, based in New York, and 12 Chimes It's Midnight, based in San Francisco. All three shows are available wherever you get your podcasts, and both will be starting up with new seasons of content this coming fall. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. And if you're going to be in California this November, Spurvac, the Society to Preserve and Encourage Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy, will be having their next convention this coming November 1st to the 3rd at the Crown Plaza Hotel at 3131 Bristol Street in Costa Mesa, California. For more information, please go to Spurvac.com. Breaking Walls episode number 84 will present tales of mystery, murder, macabre, and mayhem from the mouth of some of the best who ever did so in the genre of audio. Just in time for autumn and the coming Halloween, it'll be available beginning October 1st, 
2018. In the meantime, if you haven't yet, give a listen to A Man Named Marlowe, our audio drama miniseries set in 1935 Los Angeles and featuring Raymond Chandler's famous private eye, Philip Marlowe. Both Marlowe and Breaking Walls are available in the same feed and can be subscribed to by searching for Breaking Walls everywhere you get your podcasts or at thewallbreakers.com. If you listen to Breaking Walls on your iPhone through iTunes, give me a quick rating. Each rating helps jigger the iTunes algorithm into action and helps more people who potentially love to know about the golden age of radio discover this show. And if you've got some spare chains, you can become a Patreon supporter for as little as $1 a month by going to patreon.com slash thewallbreakers. So, until October 1st, my name is James Scully, and this has been Breaking Walls episode number 83, and I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much. <laughs>